Moroni told us in Mormon chapter 8, Behold, I would write if I had room upon the plates, but I have not, and or I have none. So there is an untold story between these verses and the book of Ether. Somehow Moroni was able to get more ore and create plates because he gave us the marvelous book of Ether that introduces us to a whole new world. Welcome to Meridian Magazine's Come Follow Me podcast. We're Scott and Maureen Proctor, and today we're going to study Ether chapters 1 through 5 in a lesson called Rend That Veil of Unbelief. Now for a moment, I want to share with you some insight into the new product we're offering called the Nauvoo Diary and Weekly Engagement Calendar. As many of you know, Scott is a wonderful and gifted photographer, and this book is so full of images that thrill your soul and hark back to our own history. The thing that I love about it is that Nauvoo runs in my veins. I grew up near Nauvoo. Nauvoo is like a second home to me. And so these pictures that I've placed into this diary and engagement calendar are so beautiful and textury, and it makes you feel like you're walking back in time, that you're there. So on a weekly basis, as you open the pages, you'll see these gorgeous images of Nauvoo, mainly in the fall. You'll find out that fall is my favorite color. And so you'll see all these images, and it'll inspire you to write wonderful things. What's great about it is it gives room for you not only to put your daily engagements, if that's what you want to use it for, but to take notes about something significant that happened that day. And there are places to write your thoughts in more depth in the book. It's designed to help you write your journal. And I know that when I put it on my desk, Scott, it just seems like a little glowing spot there because it's so beautiful. You can get it at latterdaysaintmag.com forward slash Nauvoo for only $18 as an opening price. Again, that's latterdaysaintmag.com forward slash Nauvoo. And I just have to say one more thing. The reason I created it for this year is because this coming curriculum year is church history. So you're going to be immersed in this church history curriculum and have this right by your side to be able to be there in Nauvoo all year long. What I like about it, too, is that it is organic. Everything is electronic around us. And this is just somehow soothing and comforting to have this organic book that you can have right by your side. Moroni makes an account of the Jaredites with his source material being the 24 plates that the people of Limhi found in the north, which were then translated by King Mosiah with the help of the Urim and Thummim. Now, I think when we get the full record, we'll find out that this was probably the greatest thing that King Mosiah had done, was translated this entire record. This is an enormous record, because when we say plates, we're not talking about 24 single sheets but 24 volumes, large sets of plates. It is a record of a people who left the Tower of Babel when the language was confounded. We note something interesting right away. Though the person we focus on immediately is the brother of Jared, we never get his name. It took Joseph Smith to tell us more than 4,000 years later that his name was Mahonrai Moriankamer. Why? Because as we are shown in the genealogy given to us in the first chapter, this book is written by Ether, who is a direct descendant of Jared. It's a family story. 
The story of the Nephites and Jaredites shares some important similarities. In both cases, the original righteous group was taken out of areas that were about to be destroyed and led through the wilderness, including a sea voyage, to a promised land. Both are following the wilderness journey pattern, which seems central to Scripture and to our lives. Ultimately, though the Lord gives them every possible opportunity, it does not end well for either group, as both are decimated and their nations did not survive because they turned from the Lord. Since Moroni has seen our day, that the stories of both civilizations should have such a dire end has to stand as a warning to us. It's not enough to tell us once. He must tell us twice. The world of the Jaredites feels completely different than the Nephite world, and it should, being so entirely separated in time and origin. Dr. Hugh Nibley said, With the same unfaltering and unhurried step that led us across the sands of Arabia, the author of the Book of Mormon now conducts us into a world so remote, so utterly different from anything within the scope of the biblical or classical student, that if we would follow him, we must acquire a whole new gear and tackle for the journey. I think we are agreed that it would take a great deal of training for anyone to acquire the background necessary to compose 1 Nephi. Now imagine any man insane enough to try after such colossal exertions to write another such story of equal length and detail, but this time about a totally different race of people living in an age far removed from the other and in a wholly different geographical setting. Yes, with this history, we are going back into the mists and shadows of such a faraway time that we can hardly see into it without this record. Just a word about the Tower of Babel. We only have a few words about it in the Bible— or in ether, but other sources give us additional ideas, and we always have the sense that this post-flood wickedness is based on rebellion against God. The Midrash called the people who built the tower the generation of secession, in other words, they seceded from God, who said, He, God, has no right to choose the upper world for himself and to leave the lower world to us. Therefore, we will build us a tower with an idol on the top holding a sword so that it may appear as if it intended to war with God. The builders spoke sharp words against God, saying if they were ever to survive another deluge, they had to build higher. Another tradition is that Enoch's righteous city that had been taken up was now rotating above the earth, and people wanted to build a tower to get there. At any rate, it was an effort of extreme arrogance and rebellion. From the Sarajevo Haggadah, we learn 600,000 men were engaged for 43 years in building the tower. The tower had reached such a height that it took a whole year to hoist up necessary building material to the top. In consequence, materials became so valuable that they cried when a brick fell and broke, while they remained indifferent when a man fell and was killed. In response, we read in Ether, The Lord confounded the language of the people and swore in his wrath that they should be scattered upon all the face of the earth. And according to the word of the Lord, the people were scattered. The brother of Jared was a mighty man and in favor with the Lord who cried unto him, first, that their language not be confounded, next, that their friend's language not be confounded, and last of all, where should they go? 
The Lord honored his requests, and they were told to gather their families and flocks, both male and female, of every kind, and also of the seed of the earth of every kind. And when thou hast done this, thou shalt go at the head of them down into the valley which is northward. And there will I meet thee, and I will go before thee into a land which is choice above all the lands of the earth. That's quite a thing from the Lord to say, go into this valley, and there I will meet you. That's just really exciting to think about. Dr. Nibley said, The confounding and scattering of the people of the tower was no slow working out of the historical process. It was sudden and terrible, and the Book of Ether gives the clearest possible indication of what caused it. The Burans of Central Asia are terrible at all times. Ancient and modern travelers tell almost unbelievable but uniform tales of those appalling winds which almost daily shift vast masses of sand, dust, and even gravel from one part of the continent to another. The great Loess deposits on the eastern and western fringes of the vast area bear witness to even more dreadful dust storms that accompanied the drying up of the land after the glacial epoch. But it is when the world's weather gets out of hand, as it has a number of times in the course of history, that the blowing sands of Asia bring mighty empires to ruin, bury great cities almost overnight, and scatter the tribes in all directions to overrun and submerge the more favored civilizations of the East and West. End of quote. The Lord commanded that the Jaredites should go north into the wilderness, which is into Asia. Much like the children of Israel, the Lord did go before them and talked to them as he stood in a cloud and gave directions whither they should travel, talking to them in a cloud. They built barges and traveled across many waters, but this was not yet the ocean, for the Lord would not suffer that they should stop beyond the sea in the wilderness, but he would that they should come forth even unto the land of promise, which was choice above all other lands which the Lord God had preserved for a righteous people. You know, Maureen, when we're reading Ether, I think a lot of people miss this particular thing. They built a whole set of barges twice. And this is the first time they build them, is the sea in the wilderness. And then they're going to build them again. And we'll see that as we go along here. Right. When they finally arrive at the seashore, they stop for four years. The Lord talked with the brother of Jared and chastened him because he remembered not to call upon the name of the Lord. The Lord told him, I will forgive thee and thy brethren of their sins, but thou shalt not sin any more, for ye shall remember that my spirit will not always strive with man. Wherefore, if ye will sin until ye are fully ripe, ye shall be cut off from the presence of the Lord. He was instructed that his people should make barges to cross the sea. I can't imagine what it would be like to be chastened or rebuked by the Lord for three hours. I think it's interesting, too, that here the Lord is chastening them because they forgot to pray. And he called it a sin. And so sometimes if we kind of get a little casual with our prayers... We don't realize that this is withdrawing ourselves from the Lord, and the Lord does not take this lightly. Now, in this Ether chapter 2, we observe a prophet praying, and when we get to see those moments in Scripture where prophets are praying, there is a profound lesson for us. We all want to learn to pray better. We want to get beyond that point where it seems our prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling. We love what one of our Meridian writers, Wally Goddard, said he learned about prayer from the brother of Jared. In fact, this is from an article he published in Meridian, which we have always remembered. 
And when we have published 35,000 articles over the years, you can see that we really love this one. Wally wrote, In the church, we typically teach a standard four-part formula for prayer. Call on God, thank, ask, close. This is an excellent initial foundation for prayer. Missionaries teach it to investigators, some of whom have no idea how to approach God. We teach it to our children as they first learn how to talk with Him. It instills in us a sense of respect when addressing our Father, the goodness of practicing gratitude, and the comfort of being able to call upon the Lord for help with our needs. Yet, Wally says, as we mature and grow, we want something deeper. The most important relationship in our lives is our relationship with our Father in heaven. We want to ensure that when we approach Him in prayer, our emphasis is on enabling greater connection and closeness in our relationship with Him, to seek Him, to share our souls with Him, to better align our will with His, to receive His mercy and guidance, to feel His love for us. That is what we yearn for. In order to strive for the relationship we seek, we must ensure that we do not risk ritualizing our conversations with Him or allow those conversations to become tired and routine. While honoring the basic principles we have been taught about approaching Him, we will also use expanded and fresh approaches as our relationship with Him matures. He continues, In my life, I struggled in earlier years with feeling like a prayer failure. The standard prayer pattern often didn't work for me. I concluded that there must be something wrong with me. In the midst of my search for better prayers, one of my church teachers counseled all of us to ponder and pray at least 20 minutes each day. I thought it might help, but I confess that my mind wanders. Many times when I attempted to pray for 20 minutes at a time, my mind would drift to the sale on power tools at Home Depot. I yearned for a process that was better customized to my personal spiritual concerns. Fortunately, I have been rescued from prayer failure by learning from people in Scripture who knew how to pray. Well, he said, somewhere in midlife, I became spiritually desperate. The tidy pretense of being a good person did not hold up to the painful reality of my fallenness. In desperation, I called on the familiar words of Alma, O Jesus, Thou Son of God, have mercy on me. Much to my surprise, I felt instant comfort. I had expected a heavenly chiding and a few years in hellish time out. Instead, Father scooped me up and loved me. What a shock. It felt not only unexpected, but wrong. How could God fellowship a sinner? Finally, I realized, if I make myself humble, He makes me clean. And when I am clean, he gladly sits with me. Learning from Alma may have provided me my biggest prayer breakthrough. I realized that prayer is not a polite begathon. Nope, it is a lost and confused son in a hostile and foreign land calling home for directions. My prayers are far more effective when I recognize my desperate need for heavenly help. I must cry out for heavenly mercy if I am to navigate the challenges of life. He continues, In many talks about prayer, we quote Amulek 
in Alma 34, directing us to pray in our fields, houses, and wilderness, and for our crops, flocks, and souls. We are to pray morning, midday, and evening. The part I have never heard anyone quote is the context, yea, cry unto him for mercy, for he is mighty to save, yea, humble yourselves and continue in prayer unto him. We are not merely instructing the Lord on our requirements, we are throwing ourselves on his mercy. We are recognizing that all good things in every area of our lives come from him. We are affirming our utter dependence on him. Begging for mercy is different from presenting our demands. Prayer, as described by Amulek, may also be a continuing conversation. A good friend of mine described her prayers. Her spiritual desperation was of a different nature than mine, so she customized her prayers differently as a continuing conversation. Here is her description. She said, I've been single my entire adult life. There is no one in my home I can talk with and process my day with. So many times in my prayers, I will simply talk out loud with Heavenly Father, sharing the events of the day and reflecting upon what I am thinking about, the current issues and concerns in my life. Sometimes I will do this at the end of the evening. Other times I will talk with Him as I am driving in the car or during other moments when I am by myself. It is a form of connection with Him that addresses my aloneness. He fills in that hole in my life. There are other parts to my prayers, but many times, sharing my current thoughts and reflections is the most valuable part of our conversations. As I describe the events of my week, I typically begin to view them more from his perspective. Those conversational prayers become a source of insight and comfort. While I sometimes follow the standard four-step pattern, many times there is no formula to my prayers. I am simply talking to a wise and loving friend my best friend and father. While he said, we are often instructed to pray more earnestly. If we understand that to mean that we should beg harder, we will be disappointed. In contrast, if we understand praying more earnestly to mean depending more completely on the merits, mercy, and grace of him who is mighty to save, we will have productive prayers. This is fully contrary to our cultural conditioning. We are accustomed to stiffening our personal resolve. God invites us to open our hearts to Him. I have continued to use Alma's prayer for mercy for years. I still cry out regularly, O Jesus, Thou Son of God, have mercy on me. That cry has great power. But I have also discovered an advanced pattern for approaching the Lord from the brother of Jared. Well, he said of the brother of Jared, His story is unique in sacred history. He went from a three-hour chastening from the Lord because he remembered not to call upon the name of the Lord to entering the divine presence in unprecedented ways. What happened between the chastening and the heavenly encounter? That's a vital question. What happened can teach us essential principles for approaching God. I have studied his prayer in Ether chapter 3, verses 2 through 5 with great interest. I think I see a pattern that can guide us in special prayers. Now remember at this point, when this prayer begins, the Lord has already instructed the brother of Jared to build barges, and he has. Then, first, as he prays, the brother of Jared gives the context. He describes what the problem is specifically and what their state is. 
Sometimes in prayer we are very general because we have not defined the problem for ourselves clearly. What is it that I really am asking the Lord and what do I need specifically? What is at the heart of my problem or my hope or what do I hope the Lord will help me with? The brother of Jared prays, O Lord, thou hast said that we must be encompassed about by the floods. Behold, O Lord, thou hast smitten us because of our iniquity and hast driven us forth, and for these many years we have been in the wilderness. So there is his context. Next, the brother of Jared acknowledges to whom he speaks. This is the great God of heaven and must be acknowledged with reverence and humility. This is not somebody from the pizza shop. He prays, Thou art holy and dwellest in the heavens. O Lord, that thou hast all power and can do whatsoever thou wilt for the benefit of man. When we pray, we are talking to someone that if we came into his presence, we would fall on our face in weeping humility. So next, the brother of Jared acknowledges his humility and nothingness before the Lord. O Lord, and do not be angry with thy servant because of his weakness before thee, for we know that and that we are unworthy before thee. Because of the fall, our natures have become evil continually. Then he cries for mercy, saying, O Lord, look upon me in pity, and turn away thine anger from this thy people. Finally comes his plea for divine help. O Lord, thou hast given us a commandment that we must call upon thee, that from thee we may receive according to our desires. Thou hast been merciful unto us. Behold, O Lord, thou canst do this. We know that thou art able to show forth great power, which looks small unto the understanding of men. Wally Goddard took his observations from the brother of Jared's prayer and came up with these parallels for himself. 1. Father, thou art holy and dwellest in the heavens. Thou art glorious beyond description and gracious beyond comprehension. I stand in awe of thy goodness. I am immeasurably grateful that thou hast revealed thyself to us. Then, too, because of the fall, my nature has become evil continually. I am a mess, and I know I am. I make no pretense of deservingness. I come to thee in desperation. And three, look upon me in pity. Turn away thy wrath. O Lord, have mercy on me. I am desperate for thy heavenly gift. And finally, four, grant according to our righteous desires. I love this because it is an acknowledgement of the difference between us and God, that we are entirely dependent upon him, and that we no way possibly deserve the gifts that he so freely gives us. But it opens us to be cleansed of sin, and then he comes and sits with us. Wally continued, The brother of Jared's pattern is especially useful for turning crisis into revelation. I think I discern a strong correspondence between these four elements and the advanced form of prayer taught in sacred places. In fact, I suspect that God chided the brother of Jared for not praying, not because he neglected prayer altogether, but because in a time of great need, he had failed to use what God had taught him about powerful prayer in his endowment. I should acknowledge that the brother of Jared's prayer may not be appropriate for opening sacrament meetings, but it is appropriate for opening the heavens. It is the way I begin every day. It is also the prayer with which I approach him every time I partake of the sacrament. Well, he continued, 
There are as many patterns for prayer as there are purposes for prayer. When we recognize that prayer is a way of drawing on heavenly power to address the challenges we face, then we naturally understand that there are many forms of prayer. In some, we cry out for redemption. In others, we calmly reflect. In all prayers, we acknowledge our need for heaven's grace. I know that I have grown spiritually as a result of patterning my prayers after scriptural models. I know that there are many other models of prayer from Elijah to Enos to Joseph Smith. I now see prayer as a continuing conversation with my most beloved friend. The basic pattern we were taught as children can remain a good foundation at the same time as our life situations become more varied and our relationship with Him matures and evolves. We should not insist upon limiting ourselves to any one formula. Instead, we pursue customized, fulfilling conversations with the Almighty who invites us to come to Him. Checklist approaches are not adequate for such conversations. No, instead I approach Him with profound respect. I chat with Him along the way. I plead for heavenly grace, and I listen for His sage counsel. These are the kinds of prayers that work for me said Wally. Now, a word about the barges. Jared has two specific questions. First, how will they breathe in the barges and how will they get light as they are tossed on the storms of the sea and encompassed about by many waters? Remember, those same winds that brought down the Tower of Babel would also affect the sea. We know this about the barges. They were small and light upon the water and exceedingly tight even that they would hold water like unto a dish. The scriptures tell us that the barges were tight like unto the ark of Noah. Therefore, when they were encompassed about by many waters, they did cry unto the Lord, and he did bring them forth again upon the top of the waters. So these barges, though small, are similar to the ark and can do well in the worst of storms. The other issue is the light, and where would the brother of Jared Get the idea for shining stones. We learn this from Book of Mormon Central. While stones that emit light may seem like an absurdity to some modern readers, legends of their existence and importance were widely spread throughout the ancient world. Of particular relevance is the way that shining stones were directly linked to Noah's Ark. In the Babylonian Talmud, for example, one Jewish commentator reported that the Lord instructed Noah to set therein precious stones and jewels so that they might give thee light, bright as the noon. Another ancient Jewish rabbi explained, During the whole twelve months that Noah was in the ark, he did not require the light of the sun by day or the light of the moon by night, but he had a polished gem which he hung up. Considering that his people were already constructing barges after the manner of Noah's ark, it is possible that the brother of Jared knew something of the stones which illuminated Noah's vessel when thinking of a potential source of light for the barges of his own people. Nibley thus argued that the brother of Jared was simply following the pattern of Noah's ark, for in the oldest records of the human race, the ark seems to have been illuminated by just such shining stones. And if you look in your Old Testament and go and study the whole story of the building of the ark, there'll be a footnote in there that talks about this very thing. Our life is like the journey the Jaredites anticipated across the stormy sea. 
where the mountain waves would dash them. They would be carried here and there by the winds, and they would be tossed by strong currents. This is a journey they could not survive in the dark, and neither can we on our own personal life journey. The brother of Jared sought a remedy for the darkness. Putting his mind and muscle to the solution, he did molten out of rock 16 small stones, and they were white and clear. I have tried to imagine the work and ingenuity it would take to melt stones. What kind of grueling labor in those times was required to create a heat source that can melt stones, sweat dripping from your brow? Yet still, after all the brother of Jared could do, after hard labor and effort, and the best solutions of his own mind, still he had only 16 dark stones. They were only able to shine when they were touched by the finger of God. So often we are troubled and hurried, wearied and overworked. We create the equivalent of 16 stones in our lives, and that is where we leave it. The world is so much with us that we do not take the journey to the mountaintop and let the Lord touch all our dizzying effort with His finger and fill it with light. Until He does, however, we are still traveling in the darkness. Busy and hurried, too often we take natural man solutions, rushing from one task to another, checking off the items on our list to do in a mad frenzy without the transforming power that spiritual insight always brings. The alarm rings in the morning, and we are often running, too often without climbing the mountain to have the stony pieces of our lives touched with light. The scriptures have a phrase for this hurry in the darkness. They speak of people who suffer from the blindness of their minds. The original Greek translation of this word, blindness, yields some profound understanding. The word porosis, which means the covering with a callus, obtrusiveness of mental discernment, dulled perception. Our best efforts and our best solutions will remain dark, uninspired, and fruitless until the Lord touches our efforts with His light. Oh, I do love that insight. But for our growth, He does expect us to take responsibility, work hard, and seek solutions. And the Lord said unto the brother of Jared, What will ye that I should do that ye may have light in your vessels? For behold, ye cannot have windows, for they will be dashed in pieces. Neither shall ye take fire with you, for ye shall not go by the light of fire. Elder Holland said, Clearly the brother of Jared was being tested. The Lord had done his part, miraculously, profoundly, ingeniously. Unique, resolutely seaworthy ships for crossing the ocean had been provided. The brilliant engineering had been done. The hard part of this construction project was over. Now, he wanted to know what the brother of Jared would do about incidentals. Elder Holland continues, After what has undoubtedly been a great deal of soul-searching and head-scratching, the brother of Jared comes before the Lord, perhaps red-faced but not empty-handed. In a clearly apologetic tone, he says, Now behold, O Lord, and do not be angry with thy servant because of his weakness before thee. For we know that thou art holy and dwellest in the heavens, and that we are unworthy before thee. 
Because of the fall, our natures have become evil continually. Nevertheless, O Lord, thou hast given us a commandment that we must call upon thee, that from thee we may receive according to our desires. Behold, O Lord, thou hast smitten us because of our iniquity, and hast driven us forth. And for these many years we have been in the wilderness. Nevertheless, thou hast been merciful unto us. O Lord, look upon me in pity, and turn away thine anger from this thy people, and suffer not that they shall go forth across this raging deep in darkness. But behold, these things which I have molten out of the rock. Elder Holland continues, Things, the brother of Jared hardly knows what to call them, rocks probably doesn't sound any more inspiring. Here, standing next to the Lord's magnificent handiwork, these impeccably designed and marvelously unique sea-going barges, the brother of Jared offers for his contribution, rocks. As he eyes the sleek ships the Lord has provided, it is a moment of genuine humility. He hurries on, And I know, O Lord, that thou hast all power, and can do whatsoever thou wilt for the benefit of man. Therefore, touch these stones, O Lord, with thy finger, and prepare them that they may shine forth in darkness. And they shall shine forth unto us in the vessels which we have prepared, that we may have light while we shall cross the sea. Behold, O Lord, thou canst do this. We know that thou art able to show forth great power, which looks small unto the understanding of men. Elder Holland says, What happened next ranks among the greatest moments in recorded history. Surely among the greatest moments in recorded faith, it forever established the brother of Jared among the greatest of God's prophets. As the Lord reaches forth to touch the stones, one by one with his finger, a response, it would seem, coming in undeniable response to the commanding faith of the brother of Jared, the veil was taken from off the eyes of the brother of Jared, and he saw the finger of the Lord. And it was as the finger of a man, like unto flesh and blood. And the brother of Jared fell down before the Lord, for he was struck with fear. The reply, I saw the finger of the Lord, and I feared lest he should smite me, for I knew not that the Lord had flesh and blood. Then this marvelous declaration from the Lord, because of thy faith, thou hast seen that I shall take upon me flesh and blood, and never has man come before me with such exceeding faith as thou hast. For were it not so, ye could not have seen my finger. Sawest thou more than this? The brother of Jared answers, Nay, Lord, show thyself unto me. The Lord removed the veil completely from the eyes of the brother of Jared, and came into full view of this resolutely faithful man. Then this most remarkable revelation of the premortal Jehovah. Behold, I am he who was prepared from the foundation of the world to redeem my people. He said, Behold, I am Jesus Christ. I am the Father and the Son. In me shall all mankind have life, and that eternally, even they who shall believe on my name, and they shall become my sons and my daughters. And never have I showed myself unto man whom I have created, for never has man believed in me as thou hast. Seest thou that ye are created after mine own image? Yea, even all men were created in the beginning after my own image. 
Behold, this body, which ye now behold, is the body of my spirit, and man have I created after the body of my spirit. And even as I appear unto thee to be in the spirit, will I appear unto my people in the flesh. Two questions arise here. When the Lord asked, Sawest thou more than this, or did you see more than my finger, did the Lord truly not know? Our God, who knows all things, knew exactly what the brother of Jared had seen. The second question is about the phrase, Never have I showed myself unto man whom I have created. Elder Holland said, The potential for confusion here comes with the realization that many, indeed we would assume all of the major prophets living prior to the brother of Jared, had seen God. How then does one account for the Lord's declaration? Perhaps the Lord is talking in the context of just that dispensation. Or, as Elder Holland says, another suggestion is that the lowercase reference to man is the key to this passage, suggesting that the Lord has never revealed himself to the unsanctified, to the non-believer, to temporal, earthly, natural man. The implication here is that only those who have put off the natural man, only those who are untainted by the world, in short, the sanctified, such as Adam, Enoch, and now the brother of Jared, are entitled to this privilege. A final, and in terms of the faith of the brother of Jared, which is the issue at hand, surely the most persuasive explanation for me, says Elder Holland, is that Christ is saying to the brother of Jared, Never have I showed myself unto man in this manner without my volition driven solely by the faith of the beholder. As a rule, prophets are invited into the presence of the Lord, are bidden to enter his presence by him and only with his sanction. The brother of Jared, on the other hand, stands alone then, and we assume now, in having thrust himself through the veil, not as an unwelcome guest, but perhaps technically an uninvited one. Jared came down the mountain and wrote down the extensive revelations he received from the Lord, and they are the two-thirds of the golden plates which are sealed to us and won't be available until we have faith like unto the brother of Jared. That means that we're looking at more than a thousand translated pages of material just on the visions of the brother of Jared. That's just so remarkable and so exciting. There never were greater things made manifest than those which were made manifest unto the brother of Jared. Moroni sealed up this record along with the interpreters, two additional shining stones the brother of Jared was given on the mountain. These were the same Urim and Thummim that Joseph Smith used to translate the Book of Mormon. That's all for today. We're Scott and Maureen Proctor, and this has been Meridian Magazine's Come Follow Me podcast. Next week we'll be studying Ether, chapters 6-11, through 11, That Evil May Be Done Away. Don't forget to add the Nauvoo Diary to your Christmas gift giving at latterdaysaintmag.com forward slash Nauvoo. That's latterdaysaintmag.com forward slash Nauvoo. Thanks to Paul Cardall for the beautiful music and to Michaela Proctor Hutchins, our producer. See you next time.